In the city of Seattle, there's a neighborhood on a hill called Queen Anne. And there was this white house there in the early 70s that was full of young men. That is where our story begins. You know that crooked street that goes up to Mercer from Elliott? Yeah. Okay, so you so if you're you're coming uh south and you and you go up that hill and you know at the top it makes a pretty tight This is Jim. He was my dad's best friend for years, high school, college, and well beyond. He's telling me here about the house that they shared in their 20s with some very specific directions on how to get there. Big condo there now. But that's where it was. And gosh, we had a great view, uh, you know, looking down. You could see Puget's down and stuff. And um, it was just, it was so close to everything. It was a. Uh, it, it was a lot of fun, and I think we ended up paying 150 a month as time went on. They actually raised the rent a little bit. We had the two Villeneuve brothers, and uh, yeah, it was a happening place, I'll tell you. When I was young, my parents used to talk about this house a lot. It was where my dad was living when he met my mom, where he found his beloved rescue dog, Buffy, who they always said mom fell in love with first, even before she fell for dad. When I spoke to family and friends about these early days, this house got mentioned all the time. It's almost as if, were it not for this little house on Queen Anne, my sister and I might not even exist. I love hearing about this house. Here's my mom's friend, Candy. I met this guy, first guy I ever met, you know, my divorce. And so then I went to his house and he lived with all these other guys. And they had a, a big house up on... Queen Anne Hill, I believe. So I went guy? up to see him one night or something, and Sherry was there because she was dating Kevin. Oh. So we met then, and I go, wow, this girl's, I go, she was my idol because she she just kind of had it together. And what was the name of the guy that you met at the bar who turned out to be my dad's roommate? Jack Villanove. The Villanove brothers. They grew up with my dad and Jim and lived in the White House, apparently. And I didn't know this, but Chuck was the reason that my mom met one of her very best friends, Candy. I never even knew these guys. I never heard about them until recently. But hearing their names pop up so many times in these interviews was kind of exciting. It was like learning a new part of my parents' love story, even though my parents aren't here to tell it. You can almost imagine what it must have been like in that little ramshackle house in the 60s when my mom and dad first started dating. I think the first time I ever saw Sherry was when he brought her over to the house on the back of his motorcycle. And she, you know, was real outgoing, um, you know, real. She made up for any quietness in the room. I mean, she was always, you know, uh, always had something to say for sure. And here's my dad's little brother, Del. He moved in with Jim Mooring and uh, the Villeneuve's, and uh, I would go down to his house quite a bit, and I spent my prom night down there. Then Cher came, came into the picture, and she had an apartment someplace. I remember going there. I don't know if it was on the east side or whatever, but he had just met her, and so then she started being around more and more of the family get-togethers, a lot more, and then... Um, then they got married, 
do people like mom when she starts yeah. being around? When yeah, oh yeah, get along oh, yeah. with your parents. I know everybody. that she and Nana did. Yeah. Yeah. No, everybody got along with Sherry. You know, my dad and uh, you know Gail and Kathy. They all got along together, and it was really sad in the end when they were breaking up. I realized as I got into this stuff that maybe I had gotten ahead of myself. While that house on Queen Anne was definitely where their story really began, there was a lot that happened even before this place came into the picture. A lot that shaped who my parents each were when they met. And the things that they did later on. So I want to dig a little further into the past to see who their parents were. To what they carried with them even before they met. Because I think that stuff matters. For better or worse, what happens to us as kids shapes our mindsets for our whole lives. So in this episode, Chapter 2, we are going to look into my dad's background. I'm Kat O'Shaughnessy Coffrin, and this is Lost and Found my audio documentary about trying to unravel the complex relationships and heal the losses of my parents so I could find my truth and reclaim where I come from. This is Chapter 2, The O'Shaughnessy's of Queen Anne. To get started on fact-checking the past, I turn to the one person who always has to humor me, no matter what weird ideas I cook up. My sister... Jen. So one thing I wanted to see if you would do with me in this conversation is see if we can piece together the story, their story. I had a lot of questions. The first one I had is where, where were they both born? Well, dad was born in Canada. Where do you know? Was it Vancouver or was it like somewhere else? Saskatchewan, I think. Right? Well, Isn't that's where Nana like? was from. We were already disagreeing. We both knew that our dad was Canadian. Our grandmother, Nana, or Hazel Merrifield originally, had been born in a teeny tiny town in Saskatchewan, and she took a train to Vancouver around the age of 20. This I know for a fact because Nana told me the story many times. Whenever I did anything, when I moved from Seattle to D.C. for college then from D.C. to South Africa to study abroad. When I traveled to China for work or went to Ireland or Vietnam, Nana would mention her train ride to Vancouver. I loved it. Anyway, this is how I knew Vancouver was a fact. Beyond that, though, the details get fuzzy. I know he was born in Canada, and I remember he was either older than I expected or younger than I expected when he <laughs> moved to the U.S., but I can't remember now which. Because I, I think, think he- Dell. And Alan were born here, but I think the rest of them were born. I think Gail, Kathy, Dan, and Wendy were born in Canada. I'm pretty sure that was the split. So we were a little bit right about some of this. We were pretty sure that Nana had met our grandfather, George, Patty, O'Shaughnessy in Vancouver, but we weren't sure why or how or what brought them to the States. I was also curious what kind of a household it was. Legend has it that there is an alcoholic gene that Nana's brothers shared, and that passed through all of the men in her family, 
my dad, of course, included. I wondered, did Patty drink? He died before I was born. What was he like? The man who raised my own dad. So I called up my Uncle Dell, who's a few years younger than dad, to get some answers. Out of the six siblings, only Dell and my Aunt Kathy are left, which gives them a lot of power in owning the facts, which you do have to take with a small grain of salt when it comes to some relatives, especially Uncle Dell, who likes to tell stories. One of the things that I don't have a lot of understanding about is just the background of your parents. I know that Nana is from Saskatchewan, from a town called Bigger, but I don't know a whole lot else about them. Like, where was your dad born? Minot, North Dakota. I had no idea. So your dad was American? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and then he, he, um, you know, he was uh, in the, he was a merchant marine for a long time. And, I didn't know um, that. Yeah, yeah. He was all over, he was around the world. He did a lot of uh, international, on a boat. But uh, then he came back to work in Canada, in Vancouver, um, in the boatyards up there, the shipyards. Oh. You know where all the uh, asbestos was. And I think that's where they met, was in Vancouver. And then we lived there for, I think everybody was born. We were all born there, except for Alan. And at some point in time, we moved down to Seattle. And that's all I remember is, Queen Anne Hill. I don't remember living up in Vancouver or anything. So, so okay. So, go, so really quickly, just going way back. So, your dad was George. What was his middle name? Do you know? George Howard O'Shaughnessy. Everybody called him Patty because when he right. was young, he was fat, and they called him Fatty. And as he grew up, they just changed it to Patty. <laughs> was he fat when you were when he was older? No. Uh-uh. So that's Uncle Dolph. I mean, I always thought that he was called Patty because he was an Irishman with a very Irish name. But who knows? Maybe this Patty Fatty thing has some merit. I may never know. Either way, I did learn some other new things in this conversation. And did he have like siblings? Do you know anything about his family growing up in North Dakota? I don't know. Anything about his family, anything about his parents. I never knew anything about him because they shipped him out when he was just a child. He went to like a military school for a while or boarding school or something like that. But then as soon as he could, he ran away or left and went to sea. And he spent years at sea. Did your dad drink? You know, I never remember him ever drinking. I do remember him smoking, but they even quit that at an early age. So what I started to piece together here, thanks to Dell and also to my cousin Terry, who grew up near the family and was not much younger than some of the siblings, was this. My grandparents were blue-collar workers during those years on Queen Anne. Nana ran in an in-home daycare and worked in the lunchroom at the local high school that most of her kids attended. Patty became a truck driver and later a janitor. It doesn't sound like they were wildly affectionate, so much as sensible and hardworking parents who always left your dinner warm in the oven if you got home late from sports or work or other school activities. I remember Nana's dry sense of humor and how she was the center of her whole family. All three of her sons struggled with alcohol. 
and my Uncle Alan, the baby of the family, tragically jumped off the Aurora Bridge in 2002. My dad was the only one in the family to finish college and then grad school, and the only one to become a cop. I never knew what was driving him through all of this, though I had always just believed it was some kind of long-held dream to become a police officer. He was tall, with a quiet and serious presence, shy most of the time. Even Dell had described him as a protector of sorts. What do you remember of dad around that time? Like, what was your relationship like with him? Um, I remember a lot. You know, we were just, like I say, I just kind of followed him around, really. Um, he was kind of a protector in a way. But uh, it's like I never really had much of a choice as to what I was going to do with him. You know, okay, yeah, we're going to do this. Okay, now we're going to do that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he always had paper out, and I, all of a sudden I was his little assistant paper boy kind of thing. So was it, was it a surprise to anybody that he decided to, to become a police officer? He, he didn't was... study criminology uh, in college. Oh, he, he was a business major. And then he got out of uh, – when he graduated from the UW, he uh, he got out, and because of his draft status, he couldn't get a job. He was number 43, and who's going to hire somebody when they're drafting all, all young men to go die in another country? So that's wow. when Jerry, Jerry said, well, you should go down and apply with the sheriff's department because if you're working there and you do get drafted, you can always get the job back when you come back again. That's so interesting because I had just always envisioned him kind of always wanting to be in law enforcement. No, I just but think it was, it was less, less intentional. Yeah, you know, I think Jerry was the main influence, and you know Kevin was a Kevin was really smart. I mean, I always was amazed sometimes when he'd figure stuff out. So Jerry is my uncle. He married my dad's oldest sister, Gail, and he is Terry's dad. He was also a cop, and he was at the King County Sheriff's Office long before my dad. And as it turns out, he was the one who brought dad into the police force, which is a little bit different than the lifelong passion I had been imagining. Terry was only about 12 years younger than my dad, and she grew up just down the street from the other siblings. She also described dad as a protector type, but she had some other things to say. Kevin was always kind and gentle and... um, you know, just I, I I never would have guessed that he had police officer in him. I mean, honestly, it's it, I mean, it was kind of a it was baffling to me and to some degree, you know, I can't say that I spent tons of time thinking about it, but I definitely thought about it. You know, it's just like, huh, because I, I would have thought that he would have gone into something, you know, I mean, he would have made a great vet or something along that line. You know, yeah. you're right. He can just work with animals and, you know, fix things his best, you know, because I, I, I saw him. But maybe it was my perspective of not being in like a really comfortable house and he always made it more comfortable that, you know, and I and even though I love cops and stuff, he he just doesn't have that like and my dad doesn't either. You know, he had an empathetic um, part to him that was, you know, dominant, I think, over most cops have to have a little bit more killer attitude to survive it, I think, without mental, you know, stress. So here's this guy who's smart and bright, 
This is something referenced by every single person I spoke to. He studies at business at UW, and he gets a very low draft number for Vietnam. He never wanted to go to war. He didn't support the war. Maybe he never even wanted to hold a gun. I don't know. But he also loved animals. Terry mentions the vet idea, which struck me because growing up, we would call dad Dr. Doolittle. He collected pets. We had goats, chickens, even a weird little pony named Queenie. We had dogs and cats, strays that showed up in the woods and came to be ours. Dad loved animals his entire life. What if Vietnam hadn't happened? What would he have done with that business degree? Would he have been a cop or would he have been something else? What what if he hadn't been shot? How might everything have played out differently or would it have? I've spent so long putting so much emphasis on that damn shooting that I never stopped to consider the weather the weight that I had given it was real. The thing about Dad's shooting is that, within our world at least, everyone remembered it. I know that I had a version I carried around that the more I compared notes with everybody else started to realize Maybe it wasn't even actually quite accurate. These kinds of stories tend to take on a life of their own in that way. So I asked, what did people remember of that night? I remember he told me that, you know, he got called uh, out to Black Diamond, I believe it was. It was a bank robbery. And uh, the guy had ditched his car and ran into the woods and so that's when they called Kev and his dog and Jake in and um, so he said there he said Jake's way out in front of him and uh, so anyway um, by the time um, Kev got there I believe the dog had already been shot and, um, but, you know, that, that kind of gave Kev, you know, um, kind of gave away this guy's location, you know, when that all happened. So, uh, he ends up, and, and what I really remember is that he said they were trading shots at each other. Mm. And then all of a sudden after Kev shot, um, the guy stood up and he says, that's it, cop, you're dead, you're out of bullets. And the guy came over Kev, came just exposed himself, came right over him, and Kev had another bullet and, and got him in the chest. And uh, so, you know, the guy must not have done too well in math or something because he counted, miscounted. Um, but anyway, um, and then of course, I think Jake got shot twice. I mean, he, he had a crease on his, on his, uh, skull as I recall. And then he had another shot in his shoulder or something. Does that sound right? 
Yeah, yeah. Actually, what I had thought was that dad got shot twice in his shoulder and his hip. And then the dog had jumped in to take the last two bullets. This is the story I've been telling as long as I can remember. But I realized as Jim was talking that maybe the story had warped a bit over time. Maybe I had let it evolve to be even a little more heroic. The story of this incredible dog saving a life. I also didn't know the part about the guy standing over dad like that. Was that true? Did I not catch that before when dad told me? Well, it turns out that it did happen or something like it. I know because I found a recording of dad himself telling the story in his own words. But we're not there yet. For now, I want to wrap up with two final discoveries that hit me really hard in relation to the shooting. The first was this comment from Jim that keeps rolling around in my head, especially in light of Terry's comments about dad and his love for animals and his gentle disposition. You know, I think I think Kev was um, as upset about the dog as he was about anything else in the whole situation. But, you know, so traumatic to, you know, try to set that event (laughs) out of your mind and continue with your life i i can't imagine um what it takes to do all that but um it was a heroic day in his life that's for sure was heroic. Of course it was. Everyone I spoke to had a memory of that moment. The moment they found out. As a kid, I remember dad was on a local television show. He was in the newspaper. When Jake died many years after the shooting, he got a hero's funeral. And for years, I hung on to this hero's narrative. It helped me justify all the tragic things that followed. But it did a lot of damage too more than I could even see until recently. And it was Terry who said the thing that maybe expanded my perspective the most. As I recounted my theory that the shooting was the event that broke my parents, that changed our trajectory, that stole my dad from us, she pointed out that by his own account, dad was an alcoholic even before that shooting took place. I just see them as very different you know, separated problems, you know, the post-traumatic stress from the shooting and all of that absolutely contributed to the alcoholism. Would he have been able to be a good parent if he didn't have the shooting? Probably not. As long as any alcoholic drinks or does any drug, they're going to fuck up their life. You know, it's just, it's just the way it is. And He would have been, I mean, unfortunately, as long as he drank, he was going to be a bad dad. Hmm. Honestly, it wasn't until she said this, or actually, till later that night when I called my sister and I relayed this comment, that I'd even considered this. I spent so long wanting to use this shooting as the explanation for the ways that my dad let me down for my whole life. 
It allowed me to believe that he was a tragic hero, not an absentee father, not by choice. And you know what? He never asked me to do that. I think my dad blamed himself for the dissolution of our family even more than I did. And then meanwhile, I think maybe it distracted me from fully appreciating that other parent, the one who stayed. The one who, flawed though she was, inspired me, supported me, showed me unconditional love as long as she was able, my mom. And so I wanna do justice to her story too and where she came from. And that's where we'll go next in chapter three, Virginia or Mike. <laughs>